Welcome to Talatera, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Today, my guest is Catherine Owen. Catherine is an independent evaluator who helps zoos, aquariums, nature centers, and conservation groups evaluate the effectiveness of their exhibitions, programs, and initiatives. She has worked in the nonprofit sector for more than 20 years. Catherine develops evaluation tools to measure people's sense of compassion and empathy towards nature. She also does a lot of evaluation related to conservation behavior change. Catherine also coaches and trains others in evaluation. She works with practitioners in environmental education and works with graduate students in the Museum Studies program at the University of Washington. I reached out to Catherine because I wanted to speak with her about doing evaluation in the kind of community settings where freelance educators often work settings such as an environmental education fair, a neighborhood conference, and other community events. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Catherine Owen. Welcome, Catherine, and thank you for stopping by today. I so appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you about evaluation. When I ask educators how they know if they've been successful at delivering their programs, Their response usually references a guest's smiling face or their enthusiasm. And I know we can't all do longitudinal studies, especially at a local community event where we don't even know, learn people's names or visitors' names who we get to interact with. But I I often think about how many ways there are to evaluate the impact of short moments, like the, you know, the short interactions that environmental educators have at settings like community events, you know, besides maybe a comment box or flip charts or something like that, what other options are there for environmental educators? That's my big question. And that's why I reached out to you. So I really appreciate you being here. Sure. So I, I would actually, yeah, I think there's a couple of different elements of your question, right? So so one is that I think very often people think that either either they can do something sophisticated in terms of evaluation, for instance, or something extremely time-consuming and resource-intensive like a longitudinal evaluation, or they can't do anything. But there's two extremes. And I think there's a continuum. So whenever you're looking at evaluating the impact of something that you're doing, I think you need to start by thinking of by getting really clear about what the purpose is. Is this information that you're trying to gather simply for your own benefit so that you can make your programs more meaningful and valuable to the folks that attend? Or 
On the other hand, is this something that is it a program that you're pilot testing and you want to scale this up substantially over the next few years? Well, in that case, then I think the burden of evidence that you need is quite a bit more significant, right? If you're looking at spending a sizable amount of money, if you're looking at trying to scale up a program, if you have funding partners who are interested in some pretty solid data on the effectiveness of your program and the impact that you're having on audiences, all of that really dictates then the level of formality or informality and the of the evaluation that you do. But you can, I think at the same time, you can certainly make any evaluation as informal as it is. There are important ways to pay attention to the accuracy and the validity of what you're doing. Right. So there's some really common practices that I think we tend to fall into, which which don't get us back very valuable data. And that's problematic on on whatever scale. Right. So I think so I think that's I guess would be my first point is that rather than kind of going jumping into I want to evaluate X, Y, Z is to really make yourself think about what am I hoping to learn? Most important question is what will I do with that information? And then what decisions, what decisions do I need that work to inform? So, and I do think, you know, you mentioned that sometimes people say, well, I, you know, it's the, the enthusiasm of the crowd. That's how I know I'm doing a good job. Or it's the smile on children's faces. And I think that those are completely legitimate ways of because we all evaluate, right? We all evaluate constantly throughout the day, throughout our lives. We're always making determinations based on evidence. And I think anyone who is really, who is a good interpreter and has been at this work for a period of time definitely does know how to get that sense from your audience of whether or not the information that you have, the way in which you're presenting it, whether that's hitting home. So I think we do get valuable information from that. What we can't do is really collect that information systematically because, you know, I mean, we've been talking a lot about biases, right? The biases that we're all subject to in our society. And, you know, it's certainly true on lower stakes issues as well. I, you know, every evaluator can, can tell you that when they were collecting data at an event, you know, that their perception of what was happening at the event did not mesh up or coincide with the data they actually collected. I think there's a phrase availability heuristic for that, but it's really just we see kind of what we want to see or what stands out to us. And it's very hard for us to, in an unbiased way, collect data. And so a lot of a lot of evaluation, a lot of the data collection methods that one would use are really giving you a way to systematize that information. I'll give you one example, which is the kind of thing that any program could do, right, regardless of what staff or training and evaluation you have. I worked for many years before working as an independent consultant. I worked at Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle for 20 years. And we, I founded the audience research department there, and we had a small team of folks that were doing evaluation. And we were evaluated, we were asked by the keepers, the raptor keepers to evaluate their program. And actually the initial conversation was a couple of the raptor keepers felt just from their own observations, felt that the program was not, not reaching families with young children, that young children were turning off and were not interested. Other folks on the team thought, no, I feel like we're hitting a home run. I feel like the 
adults as well as your children, I can tell are enthused throughout the experience. So our initial step was simply, okay, if their question is, how are young children receiving this program? We simply stationed a couple of people at the exit and timed how long it took before people began leaving. And then we looked at what people began leaving and found out that within 10 minutes, starting at seven minutes, families with children elementary age and below would start peeling off. And by 10 minutes, very few of them were left. The program went for 20 minutes. And so we were able then to share that with with the staff. And, you know, it was simply the an initial measure of whether or not people, whether or not the attention was being held. So the keepers then went and developed a 10-minute program for young children, which I believe... Well, it's hard to say right now because everything is shut. The zoo just opened up, but they're not doing programs, but but ran for a number of years and has been really successful. So I think depending on the questions that you want to answer at a program, there are a variety of ways to go about getting that information. And the, And again, the level of formality that you need varies quite a bit. That brings me to my next question mm-hmm. is, you know, one of my objectives is to demonstrate that the independent professionals in the environmental education field make good community partners yep. and they should be considered as as community partners but when we work when they work independently at community events that type of thing often they work by themselves or they may maybe there is one other person but everybody's busy 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 interacting and doing what it is that they do and while Smiles and enthusiasm and all that are is is great and is valid as you've as you've said that's legitimate feedback to have a communication or to have a conversation with community partners there needs to be something more like you said systematized something on paper to document the effectiveness of what it is that you do and so if you're working if an educator is working by themselves at an event mm. what type of thing can they do that's kind of on they can set up and kind of be, I, I guess, well, I know it was a bad thing to say, but we, I, I kind of on the honor system, you know, so that it kind of collects information as intended. <laughs> right. You know, it's that's an interesting question. So I haven't thought about, because I've worked pretty much exclusively with organizations, I haven't thought about an individual who's coming in to do, say, one component of an event. I guess my first thought is, because I I think it's so important to always try and make sure that everybody involved in an event, including all the community partners, are upfront about their goals and what they hope to, what they hope that their participation in that event does for their organization as well as for the audiences that, that attend. So I think my first recommendation would be to talk to them about, is there a plan? Do you have a plan to evaluate the event? If so, that would be ideal because, you know, we people experience events holistic, holistically and the context of the event really matters. And so ideally you're getting information about each component, including the component that you delivered of that program because it all works together. But, you know, if you're someone that feels confident and has some ideas of how to go about doing evaluation of your own presentations, I think if they don't have an evaluation plan or haven't thought about that, I think you can certainly raise that and then let them know what methods you're considering employing and see if they'd like to do that for the event as a whole. You know, I think 
I think, and you mentioned longitudinal studies. So I think the really important concept here is that we know from extensive research that a five minute or a seven minute encounter does not, does not have significant long lasting impact much of the time. There are some ways that it can, right? Somebody might meet an animal they've never seen before and remember that in the future. But, but, but often it's really the programs that you really want to invest a lot of attention into, I would argue, when it comes to evaluating the effectiveness, are those that you put a lot of resources into. So something like a summer camp. I did the longitudinal evaluation of a bug club a few years ago, and these were kids from three to eight years old who come every month and commune about bugs and learn about bugs and look at bugs and and we just we did some phone interviews with them 10 years after the fact and got some great information about the impact that had in their lives. But this was a program that most kids were in for a minimum of two years. So the the impact that can have is much more extensive, right, than a five minute program. So I don't think there's much percentage in trying to look at just as an example, and try to, to follow people over a period of time who've come to a brief program. I think a, one of my guidelines in terms of brief programs evaluation is, evaluation of brief programs rather, is you don't want to make the evaluation experience longer than the actual experience, right? Because we need to honor the fact that this is informal learning generally, right? And people are there to have a good time and not to feel as if they're taking an exam. And so some of the quick things that I do are with young children. One thing I've done effectively with a number of events with young kids is if they're going to meet four or five animals, for instance, encounter them up close, is have a picture of each of those animals beforehand, have kids sort those pictures into a pile. I like this animal. I don't like that animal. That takes about 10 seconds. Then they do it again at the end of that program. If you have a number of kids do that, you can get you can get some really solid data and you can look at statistically significant increases in the number of kids who say they like a certain animal after that program. That might take them, you know, as I say, probably it takes them less than a minute to do that sort, that card sort, we call it, at the start and the end. You can do it on um, kind of a big board with Velcro and have kids move stuff around before and after a program. You can, with adults, one of the things that people often more and more are using at programs is cell phones because cell phone technology is so ubiquitous. So there are apps. One example is Poll Everywhere. So you simply ask everybody in the audience, go to this site now and it'll ask you three questions about this program that you just attended. You could do it at the start of the program and then again at the end of the five-minute program. And even even if you did both of those, it would take, you know, users a really short amount of time to have to do that, to have to complete that. So I've also had people effectively at programs do kind of a Likert scale if you happen to have someone there. And you can even hand out these sheets ahead of time, right, to the seat of everyone who's attending the program. There's a a tool called a semantic differential, which simply takes two words. An example would be ugly, beautiful. And so two diametrically opposed words. And then you have a scale, a Likert scale. So one might be ugly, five might be beautiful. And you can have people rate the animals that they learn about on that scale before and after. And when I, whenever I've done that, you know, the encouraging thing, I think for us as environmental educators, is that you don't usually see significant change with beloved animals where you see significant change when you're when you're doing it right is with animals that are not 
at the top of anyone's list, right? So I'm thinking of a vulture program, a spider program, programs where we saw people take pretty significant jumps in how they would characterize those animals after hearing about them and seeing them up close. I think hearing about them is a critical piece, right? Because we also know that framing how you talk about an animal has a huge impact on how people perceive that animal. So so those are some tools that can be used, and there's certainly more, but in terms of things that are really quick for different audiences for a very short program, where it doesn't make sense to invest a lot of time and energy and resources. That's very helpful inf- information. Okay, so we're talking about animals here. I, my previous endeavor was plant-based education, right? And so right. plants. What about plants? Right. Plants don't quite get the same response. <laughs> what do you What do you think, or what have you observed that is a fair assessment of people's feelings towards plants? Well, you know. I guess what I'm thinking about is I've evaluated some family nature clubs. So I don't know if you're familiar. I'm sure you're familiar with Children in Nature Network. One of the things that that Richard Louvre and others developed, which is a great source, too, of uh, research articles on the relationship between children and nature. But also in a lot of those research articles, you can get ideas about evaluation techniques as well that you might want to use. But family nature club, you know, I think that I've seen really positive shifts in children's interest in natural objects as a result of having a an experience where they and their caregivers are in nature doing facilitated activities over a period of time. So what I often see, you know, every child is interested in natural objects, right? If you go outside and spend some time. But but what I've noticed with kids and also their families is if you do some more focused interpretation and facilitated activities that relate to plants, is that you'll see people start, children's interest in what they are start developing. So instead of just collecting things, then they start coming up with more questions. Why is this one shaped like that? Um, they develop more interest in those plants. Now, I don't know, I'm trying to think, I haven't followed any family nature club kids over a long period of time. So I think in terms of the thing that I have seen shift again is is interest in plants, interest in collecting plants and increase in questions that kids have about them. But I think like anything else, it really, you know, I think one thing that focusing on evaluation has taught me is that that question of, well, what do people think about X, Y, Z? It, it is so influenced by what we as environmental educators say and model for people. And so there certainly is, a, you know, a lot of research on attitudes towards plants. There are researchers, there's a guy named Kim Pong Tam, who's in, oh, I'm trying to think of what university he's at in Hong Kong, but he's done a lot of research on empathy and he believes that there's evidence that people can feel empathy for the natural world, not just for animals, but for nature as a whole. And I think that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting concept to think about empathy and compassion for, for all living things as a construct that can be influenced by life experiences and by educational experiences and so on. But yeah, I don't, um, I'm trying to think about any other specific plant specific knowledge <laughs> or, no, or that's outcomes. Cool. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> it's very, my work is very animal heavy, I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> animal 
schools and then climate change. A lot of it's focused on climate change education recently. And, but a lot of that, because I live in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of that has been related to ocean acidification, learning about the impact of climate change in the oceans. How did you become an evaluator? Did you have a background in museum studies? No. So it, when I, people use the phrases audience research and evaluation somewhat interchangeably. Audience research often includes program evaluation, maybe exhibit evaluation if you're at a museum, and then psychographic research and demographic research on participants. So, you know, it it didn't used to be a thing, audience research, right? Like people did it in marketing. Certainly they spent a lot of time trying to figure out what would influence people in a certain certain way. And that's been going on for a long time. The field of visitor studies and audience research is relatively new. There are now a handful of programs around the country, graduate programs, including at the University of Washington at um, George Mason University and a few others. But when I went into the field, I actually had worked as a community organizer and a union organizer right out of college for about 10 years. And I was not, you know, I was raised I was raised to spend a lot of time in nature. So my family went on a lot of hikes and camping trips. But I have to say for about 10 years after I got out of college, I was not very at all focused on the natural world. And then my first husband passed away after that first 10 years of community organizing and union organizing. So I I took a break from that. It was really demanding work in that couple of years when he was sick. And then after he had died, I started to just find myself in parks. And I would just sit for hours in parks. And I physically felt that I needed to be outdoors, which, which was so interesting to me, because I hadn't felt that need for a long time. And I think this, this sounds cheesy, but it's, it's actually true. I felt after that, I need to give something back because I understand now. I understand what nature and interactions with living things do for people and why it's so important. So I began volunteering at a zoo. I was then hired to be a, to work in major gifts. And so I was doing fundraising. And, you know, as a fundraiser, you need to be able to articulate why it matters. Why does this program matter? Why is this exhibit important to build? And I was so interested in how people were perceiving the animals that they saw, the natural habitats, that they, naturalistic habitats that they saw. And so I'd walk around the zoo just like eavesdropping on people, you know, and kind of thinking this is probably borderline illegal, but I'm just so interested in this. And it would help inform my work as a in development. But I became so interested in that audience perspective on their experience that I ended up going back to graduate school. I had studied sociology as an undergrad, and I got a master's degree in education. But the most important thing I did is that I kind of apprenticed myself to an organization called the Institute for Learning Innovation, which is now in Oregon, but they were based in Annapolis, Maryland at the time. And they did a lot of work for the Smithsonian. And so I worked with them and worked with Natural History Smithsonian's Natural History Museum and American History Museum. And really just I, I really just approached them and said I want to learn the ropes because they were one of the few organizations at the time that I could find that was doing audience research. And they were doing it as a consulting firm for, as I say, the Smithsonian and others. So I kind of apprenticed with them and then came back to the institution I was at and 
and pitch the idea that we start doing audience research. And that took about a year of persuading. You know, I, I really wanted to make sure that it was perceived as valuable. And so, and, and to legitimize the, to, to establish that there was a need for it. So I spent a lot of time talking to everyone that worked at the zoo, the zookeepers, the horticulture staff, the marketing staff, PR the leadership board members to try and figure out, you know, are, do you have questions about our audience? What are those questions? If we put together kind of a research plan, what questions should be on the top of that list? So, so yeah, I ended up doing that. We were fortunate to, you know, in Seattle, I think the first few grants that Woodland Park Zoo received were from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who had uh, a very strong interest in impact. They were not going to give money unless you could. We could demonstrate the impact of what we were doing, and so that I I think that and and now it's certainly not just the Gates Foundation, but I think a lot of funders, regional as well as national, have played a really important role in terms of raising all of our consciousness about the need to understand our audiences and to look at the impact that we're having. You know, I think it, I guess my kind of driving, uh, and this is another pretty long answer, but my, I'm heading towards the finish line. <laughs> my driving purpose for doing evaluation is that we don't have a lot of time. You and I know we don't have a lot of time when it comes to saving the earth, right? I mean, that's that used to sound like hyperbole, but when now increasingly people recognize that that's true. And so we cannot... I would argue we can't afford to be doing programs that we think people like, right? I think I feel strongly that any anyone developing a program needs to be able to identify how are you going to know that you're making a difference? Because we we need to know as a field of environmental education, we need to know what the most effective strategies are for helping people care about the earth and put that caring into action. I think we you know, in, in addition to just making sure that we're asking those important questions when we're developing a program from the outset, I think we also really, it's really incumbent on us to think about, are we, are we using tools that other institutions or other educators have used to measure the same constructs? So as an example, sense of connection to nature, we often people talk about that. You ask 10 people, what does that mean? They probably have 10 different definitions. But NAAE, National, no, North American Environmental Education Association, has this awesome initiative where they're developing a toolkit for how you would go about measuring sense of connection. So they're giving environmental educators around the country or, you know, throughout the world, really, they're recommending a few standard tools that anyone could use to measure whether or not your program is increasing connectedness to nature. Because that way, we can pool that information using the same tools and we can identify what were the most effective programming choices and offerings out there. When we each develop our own survey, we can't compare anything. And I think we need to, that's part of just really taking this measurement business more seriously and trying to do it as much as we can in a coordinated way. Not not that I want to scare people off if they've not 
done any evaluation of their programs, I, you know, that doesn't need to be your starting point. But I just think that's really something important that our field is moving towards. And it would be great for for people to listeners could check out NAAE and get a lot of information about that initiative, for instance, and and see if they're interested in becoming part of that and using some of those tools with their program. Yeah, that's a good resource. Yeah, thank you. What should a freelance educator do to begin to evaluate the program? What do the, it, in your experience, does a program need to be completely dismantled or how do they need to step back and re- look at what they have and then build it, you know, build it up to be something that can be measured by some instrument? Yeah, I I think the first thing I would do, and I find many organizations have been collecting data for a while, and and this may uh, probably is not as true of individuals, but I think sometimes people do collect data but don't necessarily use it. I can't think of, I can't even come up with a number for how many organizations I've asked when they've told me, oh, you know, we're collecting, we get, we have all of our participants fill out surveys. And when I ask them, what what have you learned from the surveys? What do you do with the information? Often the response is, well, we don't really have time to look at it. And then they show me a file cabinet with all these surveys that they've never entered or analyzed. And and it's an, it's an issue of time. It's kind of that feeling that, well, I should do a survey, but then they're not able to follow through with it. And and I think that's a problem, right? It's, you know, again, I, I really feel that people that come to our the experiences that we offer, if we're going to ask them to do something and give us feedback, you know, we have a responsibility to use it or don't ask them. And so one, if you have been collecting any information, I think it's great to just ask yourself, is that, what is it telling me? Am I using it? Do I still need it? If you haven't been doing any any audience research with the programs that you're looking at. I think sometimes, you know, any anything can collapse under its own weight if it gets too big. And I think the same can be true of coming up with an evaluation plan for all your programs. So the clients that I work with, I often recommend that people start small and think about what is one particular program? What is a question? And say there's no funder involved. There's, it's just it's really just for your own information and perhaps the community partners that you're working with, if they've expressed an interest in, in it. And then look at what what do I hope that my program is doing for people? What question do I have about what they're taking away from it? And really identify what are two or three, you can think of them as research questions, right? So I don't mean a question that you would ask a visitor or an audience member, but an example would be, I've been talking about vultures forever and how important they are as part of their ecosystem. Is that making a difference? Are people more interested? Are they more likely to read information about vultures as a result of of this experience, right? So think about one or two questions and really start there. There are a lot of resources and we might we might want to list these unless unless you have them on your site, but I can certainly send you a list. But there are a lot of resources that you could review to look at what some options might be in terms of tools that you might want to use, right? We often think of a survey first because we've all taken a million surveys in our lifetime, but you can learn a lot by just watching, by observing, depending on what your question is. 
You can do a lot of things online with children, especially children and participants for whom English is a second language. Then I often recommend using graphical images. So using photographs or images, having people draw. I've done a lot with journaling and that's with longer programs, right? So maybe that's a, a program that lasts for a summer is having participants respond to different prompts and then using that as information. You know, there's there used to be, I'm sure that people are familiar with this, but there's quantitative and qualitative information that folks often hear about. And it, the thought used to be that if it wasn't numbers, if it wasn't quantitative information, then it had no validity. And the feeling about that has really changed. And so I think there's much more interest and openness towards qualitative approaches as well. Qualitative simply means that you're getting words back as the source, the type of data, as opposed to numbers. And they both have value. And often it's it's good practice to really look at approaches that incorporate both. So I guess, again, just going back to I would start small. I would start with one program and a few questions that I have, and then just start looking at what are some potential tools that I could use that would be relatively easy for me, relatively easy for the participants that come to the program to fill out. And then, you know, there are there are organizations, Visitor Studies Association is, is one of the really premier organizations in this country of folks who are interested in audiences, audience research. And they have a ton of really useful information on their website, as well as conferences and listservs. So you could participate in listservs or web chats or webinars if you wanted to get more information. There's a lot of offerings out there now. I think in environmental ed, we used to be so focused on knowledge, right? Like that was the only thing when I first started doing this work that people ever want to measure. Are they learning more about ecosystems? Are they learning about the interrelationship within this particular ecosystem? I think as a field, our understanding has grown that attitudes and emotions are extremely important and behavior is extremely important. And so I think that there's been a lot of focus and attention given by researchers over the years to measuring emotions and attitudes. So, you know, empathy may sound like something that's difficult, would be a challenge to measure, but there are a lot of different interesting tools that people can use. So I would never, because I often get that question, you know, well, I want to measure, we want to know whether or not this is changing people's hearts and minds. And I know that's impossible. So what should we be asking them? But really, nothing is impossible in the sense that there are people developing tools to measure anything you can think of, really, <laughs> in terms of the types of outcomes that we in environmental education are interested in. It's just a matter of, you know, tapping into those resources. And again, we can provide a, a list of some of those resources. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. In your ex in your experience, what needs to be investigated in the field of environmental education? What hasn't been researched well? I think that behavior change, I, I think to me, there's just such immediacy around behavior. And I think that that um, is something that until fairly recently, I don't think that we had a lot of good strategies or we're, we're implementing a lot of strategies for measuring what people do. I think that sometimes it can be more challenging, right? You know, I think people often feel like, well, will people actually, well, I, can I actually get honest information from participants about whether or not a particular event 
or my talk move them to action, right? But I think that there are ways to get around the challenges. Um, you know, people certainly, most of us want to be seen in a good light. So people will, if you're not careful about the wording of your questions, people will try, will tend to give you a positive interpretation of their own behavior. You know, again, I think it's something that we all do, but there are ways to to ask that question, to ask questions about behavior, to get really useful feedback. You know, one of the, I think that one of the most promising things I've seen a few organizations doing recently is to partner up with, say, your natural resource providers in your area. So maybe partner up, for instance, with the energy company. So maybe you're maybe you're really interested in trying to tie your interpretation of a particular resource to the action of saving energy, turning lights off when you leave the room, for instance. So a couple of organizations have recently been working with energy companies in their city to look at, okay, we can tell you because we're collecting zip code data, what parts of the city people are coming from that participate in our programs. Now let's look at their actual energy use and see if we see a change over time. Now, one, you know, a one-off talk is not going to move a neighborhood, but if you were doing talks in a, in a focused area for a long period of time and could approach maybe some community partners, including, including something like an energy company or your local water company or city, whoever it is, to try and get that kind of on the ground data on impact. Short of that, you know, what, what I've seen over and over again, I, I do a lot of reviewing of instruments and uh, evaluation plans too. And I think that we are, we are too often asking people as a result of coming to this program, do you feel more motivated to do X, Y, Z? Do you feel like it's making a difference when it comes to your personal behavior? And, you know, I think any reasonable person is going to say yes, because you feel more motivated at the time, but that doesn't translate into action. So there are ways that you can ask about that. One of the most important is it's a little more time consuming, but ask that through an open-ended question. Is there any, you know, any way in which you feel like this program is changing your own behavior? If people don't write anything, if they leave that blank, then you've got a pretty good answer there versus if they actually gave you. So I think in the interest of saving time, we ask too many closed-ended questions about conservation intent. And I think it's given us a false sense of the value or the impact of some of our programs. I see these, you know, many organizations, large and small, I think are using questions that I think are really unfortunately flawed and predisposing people to answer in an affirmative way. So I think that really continuing to dig into what are the factors that we what is a combination of factors and facilitation that influences people to engage in certain behaviors, I think is a super important area of work. I think the other thing, which kind of the first thing that people need to do if they've not already, I think in looking at that question is to figure out what is the action that we want people to take. Very often I've had program presenters or designers say to me, well, you know, anything they do would be great. Anything they do in terms of environmentally responsible behaviors would be great. Well, I think if that's how how you feel, that comes across to the participant, right? I've evaluated, I, I don't know how many programs where people have come back and said, they talked about 
actions a lot, but I can't remember a single one. And so I think the first thing that our we need to do as individuals and organizations is to be crystal clear about what is that one action that you're motivating in a program. Don't give people a suite of actions. They want to know because you're an authority, right? You have researched the subject, presumably. Anybody can pull up within seconds online a list of 10 things to save the earth. But people really have this burning desire to know what's going to make a difference. And and I think we all do, right? So if you as a program presenter and, and an authority in their mind can say, you know what, there's a lot of things people can do, but the evidence that I've been following shows me that reducing food waste is one of the most important actions. And so that's what I'm really focusing on and would really recommend you. And here's the tools of how to do it, right? Because people need not just content knowledge when it comes to behavior change, but they need procedural knowledge. How do I go about doing that is often the stumbling block. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's not just measuring, but even before that, measuring behavior change, getting clearer about what the behavior or behaviors are that you're encouraging. Now, you know, with younger children, I I guess, and I'm sure this is something that you've probably talked to previous guests about a lot, but I often think of it as, you know, our outcomes for younger children are not so much about here's the one action you should take because we're trying to grow environmental stewards. So I think there's a couple of different paths and those are somewhat different outcomes, but but certainly extremely important, right? That we're delivering programs that encourage kids to take on a ethic of stewardship that lasts throughout their lifespan, which is different. But I think, you know, again, parallel in importance in terms of that and and older kids and adults motivating individual actions. How has evaluation changed in light of our, the current moment in history. What do you think will happen to it? Which which aspect of the current moment? <laughs> uh, the, the virus. Okay, no, that's, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with the virus. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I know that the clients that I work with are doing everything online, right? And mm-hmm. so people have a lot of questions about how do we assess our impact through online of inline online experiences and through online tools. So I'm getting a lot of, you know, it's interesting to me if you think about the museum field, which I know better than other fields, you know, a lot of organizations were kind of lagging behind still when it came to virtual experiences, but everyone is there now, right? Because we've really been pressed to do it. And so There's a lot more energy being devoted to things like Google Analytics, right? How many people are looking at my website? What pages are they looking at? How long do they spend there? Are they sharing content or do they like content? Helping people evaluate their Facebook live streams. Really all of the ways to developing ways to evaluate online experiences in terms of the pandemic. I think that's the huge impact. The other huge impact, unfortunately, of course, has been job loss. Um, this in, enormous job loss. I know in environmental ed and in the museum field. And so, you know, it's really, there's been a lot of conversations about just that holding the field together and trying to 
make sure that the expertise and knowledge doesn't go out the door with some of these job losses. I think the other, obviously, the other important things about this moment are the climate crisis. I mean, two of many, right? Climate crisis. And then the kind of awakening around social justice and the impact of structural racism on all of us. And, you know, those each could have a conversation of their own. But I think there has been a movement over the last five years, at least, but still relatively recent towards culturally responsive evaluation. So just one example of that is that, you know, in the past, sometimes if people had an audience that included people who spoke Spanish as their first language and and had somewhat more limited English skills, you know, people would often do a survey of only the English speaking audience because they didn't have money to translate it. And I think we just can't we can't allow that to continue happening. Right. Because we know that we're leaving out an, a huge and important part of our audience. But there's a lot of different dimensions of of really. um trying to honor and respect the people who have been the victims of structural racism for many years and the implications that has for audience research. I think, you know, in terms of climate change and I think in terms of poverty and the economic impacts of the pandemic, you know, there's more with it, especially within the uh, American Evaluation Association, AEA, which is another great resource for people to learn more. There's been a lot of co- conversations about really looking at what are the most critical questions that we can help to answer within society right now. So how do we get ourselves in a position to be able to answer those and to help our clients think about those big questions because we don't have all the time in the world to, to figure them out? Yes. Where can the educators listening to this podcast learn from you offline? I So I have a website, which is just my consulting. The name of my business is Catherine Owen Consulting. And so the website mm-hmm. is com. It's this week, it's got undergoing some renovations. So depending on when you air this, mm-hmm. let me know so I can make sure that it's legitimate. I mean, that the link is legitimate and works. LinkedIn, my LinkedIn profile has got you could certainly contact me that way and have some information about the clients that I work with and some of the services that I offer. Anyone that lives in, um, putting in a plug here, anyone no. that lives in Washington State who might be um, an independent in, in educator, a group of us are doing pro bono a series of web chats about evaluation during the during the pandemic to give some people tools. And so we're doing that for museums and others throughout Washington state. And so people could certainly send me a note if they're interested in that. What I always do, you know, if it's anyone that has interest in talking through a project, right? So you don't know where to start. You want to start looking at evaluating one of the programs that you deliver. You don't know where to start. I always do like a 45 minute call for free at no charge to help people think through something. And I'm always happy to do that. Sometimes those turn into, sometimes it's a 45 minute chat to see whether or not we want to work together on a bigger project, but I'm fine too. If you just want to talk through something and that, and you don't have any resources, because I think, I I guess I've just been putting more and more focus in, in my own practice into not just evaluating stuff that others do, but to really help people develop those skills, because I think it's so important. We didn't talk about this, but 
there's only so much time in the day, right, to talk about things. But I was just thinking, you know, people that work in interpretive design that might be listening to this, you know, that develop text for signs at a park, for instance, one thing that would be great to look into for folks in that that do any kind of writing, but in particular, if you're developing things that a public audience would use, is to look into prototyping. You know, there's no reason to develop a sign and put it out in a park that hasn't been pilot tested. The first thing you can do is simply take that text, and I've done this a lot, even when I've been working at organizations that have lots more money, lots of money is to, before they develop a sign at an exhibit, which is going to cost them who knows how many thousands of dollars, is just create a mock-up, like a laser printed version of that sign, and have, you start with one, level one of prototyping is ask your family, your friends, your roommate, anyone who doesn't have knowledge of that content, have them read that sign, let you know, is there anything that wasn't clear in here? And that would save so, that would save all of us so much time and money, because I think often our, we create things without having done that front end research to try and figure out, is this meeting the need? And so there's a lot of great resources online about how to do prototyping, including online prototyping as well as in person. But I think there's different ways to get feedback from folks on interpretive text that really, you know, think of how much time we spend on the font and the images. And, but, you know, you could spend in two hours, you could take that out to a park that you might be looking at installing a sign in. You could stop 20 people and get their feedback and you would have a better sign. You know, projects like that, you don't, you'll find within 20 or 30 participants, respondents that you'll start to see trends. And that, you know, if that's what you can do, you don't have money to hire some firm to do a prototype formative evaluation for you, but you can do that on your own and get great information. So I guess that's what I would hope to leave people with the idea that it's not all or nothing. It's not randomized control trial or nothing, but there are many ways to get valid data from relatively low-key relatively non-labor intensive methods that can still tell you a lot about your programming or the interpretive content that you're creating. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Catherine, so much for sharing oh, sure. your knowledge and getting uh, definitely me all excited and getting, I'm sure, listeners <laughs> excited and enthused about their next projects and what they're working on. So thank you so much for your for your time. It's absolutely it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I've really, I've not gotten involved much yet, but I really have appreciated seeing your, your messages every week and really am supportive of what you're trying to do in terms of helping this community become more, more so more of a community and supporting each other. And this is such an important time to be doing that in for a lot of reasons. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. I appreciate it. Alaterra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion.